Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Welcome, everyone, to today's Breast Cancer Conversations. I am so thrilled you guys are joining us today. Today's podcast is a live recording that we did on August 10th of 2020 with Abigail Johnston and Allison Tushler. It was a... Actually, we had to break up the podcast into a couple sections. So this is part one because the conversation went on for at least 90 minutes. I want to say we could have talked for three hours, four hours, just the dialogue of being able to connect with you all and with people in our community who are going through such similar similar experiences and not needing to go back and redefine terms or start from ground one. So today we talk about terminology, language, various lines of treatment specifically for metastatic breast cancer, stage four breast cancer. And we highlight Trodelvi, which is a new line of treatment specifically for adults diagnosed with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And let's dive right in. Welcome to the conversation. First and foremost, the two of you, thank you so much for joining us on this important podcast conversation today. As you know, Breast Cancer Conversations is a podcast where we talk about all things breast cancer. And Abigail, you were on our one of our initial podcasts almost two years ago. And so my introduction to speaking with Abigail and also Allison to let the community know is these women and I go way back. We go way back to my initial conversation of like being diagnosed with breast cancer. And I have to pick on you a little bit, Abigail, because Uh-oh. I what yeah, don't be too scared. At least you're sitting down for it. But we were gonna have a meet and greet event in Miami. And this woman just on Facebook was like, Oh, you're coming to Miami? Okay, let's get in touch. Let's hang out. Let's get together. And I'm like, okay, great, we can make this happen. And she's like, Well, do you have a place to stay? And William and I were like, well, we normally stay at hotels when we go travel and hang out at events and do all this, like, survivingbreastcancer.org stuff. And she's like, no, 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 you're coming to my house. So first (laughs) off, can we just talk about the breast cancer community and how open we are to inviting internet strangers to stay at our house (laughs) when you have two young children um, and you're staying with your in-laws and you just opened the door and invited William and I in, and we, I think, spoke for eight hours straight nonstop that entire night. So, At least. At least. <laughs> yes. So thank you for your hospitality, and it's been a long, fast friendship ever since. And we also have Allison on the call today, who is, I think, almost my full circle story, because you and I met at an immunomedics event mm-hmm. down in New Jersey, and unbeknownst to me, you or I, fast forward two years that we'd be having this conversation today. But two years ago, we met at an Immunomedics launch party for Humanly, which is um, a, I don't even know how to directly describe them, but they're an offshoot of Immunomedics and as a nonprofit sector for patient advocacy and support. And we were there learning all about triple negative breast cancer, the launch of their platform and hearing stories and connecting with so many amazing women And I was literally scrolling through my phone and I'm like, I met you. I know you. (laughs) And we've connected so many times since then. And then 
Fast forward to December of 2019, you, me, and Abigail all met in the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium down in mm-hmm. San Antonio. This is pre-COVID when we can fly and get together and hang out in a community of 10,000 scientists, advocacy groups, um, doctors, oncologists, all in one great big platform. And it was overwhelming, but so inspiring as well. And so mm-hmm. I'm just so glad to be able to connect the dots, bring everyone together here tonight. And I got to know both of you in, on my own terms in separate realms, and then also tonight here bringing you together. And I want to preface all of this with, this is the uncut podcast version. This is bringing the elephant in the room, talking about the elephant, stepping on the elephant, and then saying, okay, please exit stage left, right? Because <laughs> we are all about just like telling it how it is. The disclaimers to all of this is that we are speaking about our own experiences. We're talking about everything that we've experienced going through a breast cancer diagnosis. But then also, we're not the doctors and the medical professionals. So definitely talk to your medical care team. Talk to your oncologist. This is just support in its finest moment. So thank you all for joining us tonight. So let's dive right in. Thank you, everybody. Um. For those of you just joining us, I'm going to keep everyone on mute, but there will be time for uh, Q&A throughout. Again, definitely utilize the chat box, um, whether you're on Zoom or Facebook. So that was my introduction to you guys. The other reason why I'm so excited about tonight's podcast, and I tried to capture a little bit of this in our newsletter today, but I feel like I'm bringing the dynamic of stage four, metastatic breast cancer, MBC, living with breast cancer, metaviver, thriver, whatever terms you want to use. I have two of you and on my Zoom screen, it's like right and left. So like I have two of you on either side of me to talk about this. And so just to give context of who's tuning in right now, we have you know people who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. We are talking about de novo. So we want to talk about definitions and terms. What does that mean to be diagnosed at your initial diagnosis, metastatic? And then we have Allison, who is also a metastatic breast cancer thriver, but has gone through 9.9 years, months, like right up into the 10-year mark and had a recurrence. And so we want to talk a little bit about that as well. The other exciting thing about tonight is that I want to acknowledge the, the parallels, or I guess the spectrum of being an ER positive, hormonal positive breast cancer survivor and living with metastatic breast cancer and also triple negative, right? So we have two different examples of the treatments and expectations that people can go through. And Allison, I have to say, I was reading through your bio and you and I are very similar in the sense that um, our initial diagnosis at the time of, you know, whether it was 10 years ago or at the time of biopsy, we were both ER positive. And we hold on to those terms as if it's like our our Bible, right? Like we're Googling everything, like, okay, what is ER? What's the survival rate? What's the recurrence rate? What's everything we need to know about it? And when your breast cancer came back, it ended up becoming triple negative. And I talk a lot about in my uh, Thursday Night Thrivers group that even when you get your breast cancer diagnosis at the time of biopsy, it can change after your pathology and surgery. And if someone told me that, two years ago, I was like, nah, that ain't true. Like, this is what they told me. And, and I want to get that message across that it can change. And how can we mentally prepare for that change? Because no one told me about that change. So I definitely want to dive into that with you as well. Um, we have so much to talk about tonight. And so to give everyone an idea, 
this isn't going to be your normal survivor story conversation. Um, there are so many avenues we can go here. Both of these women have children, marriages, life, careers, etc. But that is not the point of tonight's conversation. Tonight is to get into the nuts and bolts of living with a metastatic diagnosis. Um, and then also, I'm going to put myself out there too. I am going to coin myself as the early stager. I am stage 2B and... Right away, I'm like putting up that shield, right? It's like, oh, early stager versus late stager. How do we talk about this? Like, come on. So let me just bring that elephant into the room and start off the conversation. Um, Abigail, maybe turning to you first, how can we talk about this? What to begin the conversation? How should we address you? What What's the preferred language that you like to associate yourself with? Or how can we talk about metastatic in, in light of your diagnosis? So I was diagnosed de novo um, metastatic, and technically, um, those of us who are diagnosed de novo are actually the only ones who are stage four, um, technically. So people who have had an early stage diagnosis and then have um, progression to become metastatic are still their original stage, but then with metastatic disease. So that's, that's the technical piece of it. Um, I know there are tons of terms that people like. Some people like thriver. Some people like lifer. Some people like warrior. Some some people do like survivor. Um, There's a stage four person that I know who calls herself a stage four survivor. I think for me, I really like the term that Sylvie Leotin posted in her blog a few months ago, which is just cancer haver. Um, I, I have cancer that that's, that is the, the correct definition or the correct label, at least for me. Um, I think the thing the the limitation with thriver, um, although I use that in terms of if people are being called survivor, okay, thriver is kind of the corollary in my mind, but in all honesty, those of us who are living with stage four cancer, we're not always thriving. Um, mm-hmm. It's not always a situation that it's a good day, a good month, or a good year. Um, so, so I like cancer haver. I think that it's a bit, um, it's it's all encompassing and it doesn't leave anybody out. Um, for me, survivor is something that I struggle with because I don't identify with survivor. I know the American Cancer Society defines a survivor as you are a survivor as soon as you've been diagnosed with cancer. I, I, I have a literature degree. I'm a lawyer. So language and the precision of language is super, super, super important to me. Um, my husband says to me all the time, well, you don't have to be that literal. Um, but I am. I'm super literal. And survivor is past tense. And because cancer will never be past tense for me, it just, it literally makes no sense to me. I know that some people really embrace that and that's really important for some people. And I have at it that that's fine. If people, if that's something that really resonates with people just never has resonated with me. So all of that to say, I I like cancer haver. I think that works. I love it. And speaking of literary degrees, Allison, you have a PhD in literature, if I'm not mistaken, correct? I do. So that's actually something Abigail and I have literary stuff in common. And we both, we both do a lot of writing and we connect on that. So it's, um, yeah, we have a lot in common. (laughs) And, and my, I have a background also in, um, a master's degree in linguistics and then my doctor in education. So we all have like 
this is like a big topic for us, which is why we're spending some time on how do we talk about cancer? How do we talk about breast cancer? So Allison, what are some of the terms that you prefer just so we can set the, the boundaries when people want to ask questions or for me for our interviews? How should we address this? Yeah, I mean, I would want to, I would say that I don't think there's a wrong term. So I don't want people to feel like, oh, you're going to say the wrong thing. Um, but I like, I do often like Thriver, but to Abigail's point, we're not thriving every day. Some days really, really suck. Um, so in some ways it seems, um, you know, it's, it's optimistic, which I try to be, but sometimes that's hard. Um, and I mean, I think I just like to say I'm living with metastatic breast cancer because um, that's that's what it is. I mean, stage four, for whatever reason, it just sounds, sometimes it sounds dark to me, um, like the end, which I just try not to think about. Um, but I, I, I do like to acknowledge how metastatic breast cancer is different from earlier stage breast cancer, and it's, it doesn't go away. And that's something I often struggle with when, I mean, there's really a, just a huge lack of understanding among the general public and even among very educated people. People are constantly saying to me, when are you done with chemo? Um, mm. What are you done? And, you know, the answer is never, because that's what metastatic disease is. So... Um, so I yes. just think it's important to, to distinguish it from, um, cancers, yes. cancer that's, that's, that can, that's, that's treated, um, or that can be treated, that can be done with because ours, ours is ongoing and it's, it doesn't, yeah. st it doesn't stop. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and I feel as an early stager who's still going through what I'm qu quoting as like maintenance treatment that I'm still going through it. I'm not metastatic, but I recently posted um, a picture of like, I had to take a day off midweek for a Zometa infusion. And it's like, oh, it's summer. You're taking a day off. You're probably going to the beach. You just need a mental health day. I'm like, no, I'm getting treatment. I'm going to feel like crap the next day. So it's, but do you yeah. need to know that? Like, how do we talk about like, no, it's my personal business, but I'm still going through it. And so whether it's a lifelong treatment or maintenance, and I know they're different, but I almost feel like I want to be a thriver. So I use the term as I'm like an embracing term because we're still going through it. And I know at some point in this conversation too, we're going to talk about the the recurrence fear that I'm living in right now. I know yeah. you've lived through that, Allison. And then yeah. Abigail going through just like your de novo diagnosis being diagnosed with metastatic. Let's back up a second and define what metastatic breast cancer is. Allison, do you want to give us a definition um, of Can what I that just is? Add, oh, yeah. Can I just add Go something ahead. really, really quick to the to the the definition discussions because somebody posted this. I think it was on Twitter the other day um, that cancer's not an adjective. Cancer's a noun. Back mm -hmm. to our like you know, background and um, and and the idea of having calling somebody a cancer patient. Um, I really like Tatiana Prowl, who is with the um, FDA. She put together this wonderful white paper on language of respect, and it was for the doctors who were going to be uh, presenting in San Antonio, and then she just updated it for ASCO. Um, and let me back up. San Antonio, it's San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, mm -hmm. and then ASCO is the Association of Clinical Oncologists. Um, those, that's just the U.S., and then there's one over in Europe as well. So these are the big gatherings of the doctors. And so they would use terminology that might be technically medically correct, but that was relatively offensive to patients. But one of the things that she talked about was 
um, just being very careful about the language, like not saying the patient failed a trial because mm-hmm. patients don't fail trials. The, the drugs or, you know, failed us or the cancer mutated to get around the drugs. And so be, having that precision of language is important. And so what I, I want to just add, I don't identify as a cancer patient because I don't think that that is, um, it, it's not, you know, linguistically correct, but I don't let, and I know that Allison is, is in this boat as well. We don't let cancer define us. Yes, it is something that we have, something that we're dealing with, is something that we're living with, but that doesn't mean that we are um, cancer. It doesn't mean that that defines all of us. So sorry, just wanted to jump mm-hmm. in on that um, mm-hmm. and make sure, I, make sure I said that. No, and I think that is incredibly important. And I know we were all at that San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium Conference and I, this was my only first time going. I know it's been around for years and yeah. it continues to evolve. And patients are becoming more and more active in this community. We are showing up to these doctor conferences, one, to learn for ourselves about the medical treatments, the studies, the clinical trials, the the dissemination of information and education. And we're sitting in the audience hearing them talk about us as patients and the trial mm-hmm. has failed us is like, mind-blowing, explosive, you know, talk about high blood pressure. So I I completely agree. So that's a really great point. Thank you for bringing that up. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, no. This is what this is all about. So metastatic, for those who don't know, so let's just like back up with like a simple definition of what metastatic breast cancer is. Um, Allison, do you want to Oh, sure. Um, so, so it's breast cancer that's spread beyond the breast. Um, but um, typically, um, I mean, if it's in the lymph nodes, it's not typically considered metastatic breast cancer, but it really means, um, you know, further out. So it could be in the bones, it could be in an organ, um, mm-hmm. someplace that's not the breast or the lymph node. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, that's an area of our website, survivingbreastcancer.org, that we're looking to develop is just the terminology and what does it mean to be metastatic and when the cancer has gone beyond and using the lymph system or even the blood system to get to other parts of the body. And the most traditional places, I would say, are the bones, the organs, and then the brain. I, you know, I don't know. It depends on, depends on the subtype, right? So please tell Um, me and enlighten us. Yes. Yes. So the most likely place, they think it's something like 60 plus percent of metastases when you have HER2 negative disease. So you've got these different receptors, right? You've got the estrogen receptors and then you've got the HER2 receptors. And then of course you've got insulin receptors and all of that. The receptors simply mean fuel. So what fuels the breast cancer? Um, For those of us who are hormone positive, the hormones are are the fuel. For um, so hormone positive, HER2 negative, uh, most likely to go to the bones, then the liver and lungs. If you're HER2 positive, the most likely for it to go to is the brain. Um, So someone with HER2 negative disease, um, brain mets are rarer, not that they can't happen, but it is rarer. HER2 positive, the most likely place for it to metastasize to is is the brain. And then... um, and then, of course, there's ductal versus lobular, right? Delving into some of these these details, and that that has to do with how the cancer um, grows. So, ductal, you tend to get the lumps that you feel. Lobular, it's it's like a spider web. It like it just gets everywhere. So, 
when you have ductal, it normally forms those harder tumors. Um, and so you have, they call them lesions sometimes. Uh, sometimes they call them tumors. Lobular goes to weird places like the lining of your abdomen or, you know, in the eyes and just different places. And I think it has, probably has something to do with how it grows in its spider web um, way. So there's an amazing group, the, the Lobular Alliance um, does a lot of great work in raising awareness in this area. I actually have mixed type, um, which is somewhat, it's, it's not as well known or studied. Frankly, Lobular is also not well known or studied. In fact, there's no trials in the United States on um, lobular cancer that has metastasized, um, only early stage lobular. There are a few clinical trials in Europe. But so I have invasive ductal carcinoma with lobular features. Mm. So I got that nice tumor that I felt in my breast, mm. but then it was like, you know, spider webbing itself out. Mm. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up the lobular piece. I know she's not on the call tonight, but we did do a podcast and an interview with Leslie. She's the author of Probably Benign. And she was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and her cancer was lobular. She does a lot of advocacy work around, um, oh, what was it called? Molecular breast imaging, which is a type mm -hmm. of screening because a lot of the lobular um, characteristics don't show up on your traditional mammograms or ultrasounds. And for her to go through all of these screenings for nothing to be found and then to find out she's stage four is like, why did we not catch this early mm -hmm. if you're going through all of the steps post 40, yeah. et cetera, to get your annual mammograms. So she is wonderful. I need to give her a shout out. If anyone has more questions or want more information, I'm happy to connect you specifically with someone who's metastatic with lobular um, breast cancer. So, so absolutely. And while we're talking about your characteristics and um, of the tumor and the diagnosis, Abigail, I believe you also have the ATM mutation. Can you talk a little bit about the genetics around breast cancer? Sure. Absolutely. I've gotten a gigantic education in all of this. Not that I wanted to. Um, so there, are, your body has cells, right? And there are mutations all the time. Um, typically, your body catches them. Ironically, it's the ATM um, part of your DNA that helps fix those. Um, so uh, there are, um, from what I understand, when it comes to breast cancer, there are two types of mutations that are important. Uh, there's germline mutations, and then there are somatic mutations. A germline mutation is something you get from your parents. Um, so BRCA is one that everybody um, has heard of. But now there is um, about 40 different genes that they look at that is somewhat related to breast cancer, and each of them has a different risk um, percentage. In my family, uh, we have the ATM mutation, just like you get money out of the ATM. <laughs> um, and even though it is associated only with a uh, moderate breast risk cancer, of breast each cancer of them has a um, different. It's risk. also associated with ovarian. It's associated with prostate. They're thinking colon is going to be added to that um, as well as pancreatic. So how did I go from having a moderate risk to having stage four? That was something that boggled my mind for a while. Um, but the only thing that I have understood is that it does, it can, germline mutations can become more um, aggressive with subsequent generations. And so previous generations in my family, my mother specifically, 
had DCIS, which is basically stage zero, um, and had that postmenopausal, uh, she was perimenopausal, she was in the middle of menopause, but I got stage four at 38, very much premenopause. And so it's not uncommon to see subsequent generations, the um, intensity, let's say, of the mutation increasing. And that is, as I understand it, evolution's way of getting rid of the mutation. Mm. Because as it gets more and more aggressive, the, the people in subsequent generations with the more aggressive type or the more aggressive um, uh, flavor, I can't think of words, sorry, <laughs> chemo brain tonight, they probably won't reproduce. So um, so that's something that's been very concerning in my family. Uh, prostate cancer, we've also seen that. So once we figured out which branch of the family it came from, we did a lot of you know, talking with different um, generations and looking back um, and getting that data to be able to see what uh, subsequent generations needed to do. And so I, I do have several relatives who have had some prophylactic treatment, um, understanding that because my generation, it seems to be so aggressive that that becomes more important. So I tell everybody, because when I got diagnosed, my breast surgeon tested me for BRCA1 and 2, and that was it. It wasn't until we figured out through the process of um, actually a medical mistake, but we can go through that later, um, that it was actually stage four from the beginning. Then my medical oncologist actually went back and did the full 40 panel, 40 gene panel. And so I try to tell people who are newly diagnosed, get that full panel from the beginning mm -hmm. because it's important to know what is going on because if they had tested me at the beginning and I knew that I had the ATM mutation, theoretically, I may have made different treatment decisions. Uh, for instance, I had a lumpectomy thinking that I was only stage two. I probably would have gotten a double mastectomy if I had known that I was stage four from the beginning. So I'm not a person that beats myself up. Hindsight's 2020, although that's somewhat of a weird term now that we're in 2020. Um, <laughs> but you, you can see things clearly looking backwards. Who knows if I would have made that decision then? But I do think it's very important, especially at the beginning, to really understand the full thing, full gamut, really understand if there's any mutations that need to be taken into consideration. Um, and then I so that's the germline mutation. So that came from my family. And then I have various somatic mutations that were picked up by um, my cancer. So I had a genetic test to look at the germline mutations, potential germline mutations. And then I had a genomic test that actually, so that actually tested, they tested the actual tumor um, to, to find out if the cancer had acquired any mutations that were actionable. The good thing about that particular test was that we discovered that I do have an actionable mutation, the PIK3CA mutation, and PICRE, one of the medications I'm on now, uh, was developed to target that particular mutation. Um, I have a bunch of other mutations that aren't actionable yet, but one of the great things about going through a company um, for both genetic or genomic is that they have the obligation to continue testing your tissue when they make new discoveries, and then they have the obligation to tell you that. So there's lots of ways that you can get genetic testing done um, in a variety of 
medical, whether it's medical or not, right? You've got 23andMe, you've got some of the um, ancestry stuff. It gives you some information, but those companies are not going to tell you, oh, by the way, um, that variants of unknown significance, because that's one of the things people see, right? Laura included. Raising my hand Um, over here. Yep. They are obligated, these medical uh, research facilities or, you know, the testing companies are then obligated to tell you if that becomes significant. And so it's something important to consider um, from the genetic perspective, because ATMs, they haven't known about it for very long and they don't have much information on it. Same as some of these other mutations, but they're gaining knowledge all the time. So super important from a genetic perspective that you're getting that done through labs that are reputable, that have all the proper licensing and all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And just to add to that, I would say, um, if you can go through your hospital and go to a genetics counselor, because it's very difficult and very, very confusing. So just having a human person to walk you through what it all means, because it turns out that, I mean, because I've been through both genetic and genomic testing, Um, my genetic testing, nothing showed up at all, which everyone was surprised. Everyone assumed I must have BRCA because I was, I, I was young and I'm Jewish, but no. Um, and, uh, and then with the genomic testing, I have the PIK3CA mutation, um, like Abigail, but anyway, you get like just reams and reams of information. Um, and it's, it's so confusing. Like, I mean, if you're a worrier like me, it could give you more stuff to worry about. So just having someone to walk you through and explain, um, cause it, cause really it ends up being almost TMI, you know, too much information right now. There's, you know, you know, there could be stuff that comes up but it's just not very, they don't really know what it means. Like half of it, they don't know what it means. Um, so just having right. someone kind of like guide you so you don't worry, you don't worry about stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And this is exactly yeah. where, yeah. you know, our interest lies to <clears throat> an organization. I know some of you have been following us for some time. We've done significant interviews around genomic testing, genetic testing, because I think it's fun to go do 23andMe or to find out about my ancestry. But at the same time, there's a lot of precautions that I want people to know about because the moment you know, you can't unknow. And there are ramifications Mm -hmm. for that, such as life insurance, for example, that's not covered if you have a genetic mutation. So that I think is a whole other podcast. I can link to that in our show notes here as well because we've done a whole study on that. We presented at a conference this past February on genetic testing and Abigail, I just put in your in the chat here on Zoom for the live, but I'll put it in the show notes also for the podcast, is the blog post that you wrote for us on the various uh, genetic and synomic um, testing and differences with some of those genetics. And as someone who has a variance of, un, what is it? I can never say it correctly. Variant of unknown significance. Yes. It's <laughs> the opposite of SUV. It's like VUS, yes, right? V- so, <laughs> right. And because I went through one of these larger organizations to do my genetic testing, um, they actually called me to let me know two years later the update on what that unknown significance was. And unbeknownst to me, I was so overwhelmed with my own breast cancer diagnosis that I didn't realize that what was unknown was the BRCA2 gene. And so I was just like, oh, there's some unknowns. Okay, fine. Let's just move on. And now in hindsight, I was like, oh, my God, it's the BRCA2 
Like I would have been in huge panic mode if I had known what I had known now. Um, but luckily they called and to let me know that the it's been updated and my particular genetics came back negative. So that's that's a happy, mm-hmm. happy piece to deliver. So yes. I want to turn things to Allison because you have um, an interesting story opposite of Abigail's not being diagnosed de novo, but a little bit of, you know, everything going from ER positive to triple negative and your initial diagnosis, I want to say it was stage three, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I've had a sampling of everything, <laughs> um, the breast cancer sampler. So um, just to tell my story a little bit, um, in sorry, my voice is going a little bit, but but I think I'll be okay. Um, in 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 two thousand and eight, um, when my son was six months old, I I decided to wind down my breastfeeding um, because I was going back to work, and thank goodness because he was so he was such a hungry baby, and I couldn't keep up, and and I was just like screw this breastfeeding thing, I can't do it anymore. It's exhausting. Um, so then my breasts went back to their normal size and I felt a lump and it was huge. It felt like a golf ball and I was absolutely shocked. Um, but um, I'm always, I've always been really, um, you know, hyper conscious about my health and I went, it didn't take me very many days to get to my OB-GYN. Um, and, you know, I went for testing and I remember looking at the radiologist, um, looking at her face and she said, this looks very suspicious. Mm. So um, we really knew, I knew it was cancer. Um, so I spent my first Mother's Day with my newborn son, like wondering if it would be my last Mother's Day because I didn't know, I knew I had cancer. I didn't know, how, I didn't know anything about what the extent was. Um, anyway, I found out that I had, actually originally we thought it was stage two. Um, and they did tell me it was very aggressive. I had the oncotype testing done. So um, given that I, w- I was young at the time, I was 35, they decided to throw everything at it. So um, I had chemo. I had this uh, the very familiar ACT regimen that a lot of people have probably had. Um, it really, really, really sucks, um, as probably everyone knows who's been on it. Um, I had um, double mastectomy and reconstruction, and I had um, radiation. And somehow I got through it all. It was horrible. You know, I felt horrible. Um, it was, you know, supposed to be the best time of my life being a mom. Um, and I remember just feeling a sense of shame. You know, I remember hiding behind, like literally hiding behind my baby, you know, cause I was like ashamed about how I looked. And um, anyway, so I somehow by the grace of God got through that experience and um made a very full recovery and resumed my life, went back to work. Um, we never were able to have another child, but we were okay with that. We, we moved um, out into the woods and had a great life for um, about almost 10 years. Um, we traveled all over the world, all over the country, um, you know, had a very, very busy and very, very full life. Um, but of course there's always that fear of recurrence and, um, as time went on, I became less fearful, um, but the fear was starting to creep up as I was getting near my 10-year anniversary, and um, I think that somehow I knew that something was off because there were just a lot of random symptoms and things that I had to have checked out, 
Um, but I did, um, in November of 2018, uh, there was a, I noticed an inflamed lymph node on my neck and I was scared. Um, the first time I went to the doctor to have it checked out, they said, oh no, nothing, you know, don't worry, it's fine. Um, but then I went back because I was actually feeling pretty sick at the time. I had a flu and it had gotten bigger. So I looked at my doctor's face and I could tell she was my, this is primary care. I could tell she was worried. Um, and I had a biopsy and she had to be the one who, I mean, it kind of goes to show how far out I was out of oncology. I still had my routine six months visit with my oncologist, but it was my primary care doctor who had to deliver me this news. Um, and that's how far, you know, how much I had progressed since then. Um, my, prim my primary care doctor called me, told me I had metastatic breast cancer. I remember yelling, um, yelling fuck in the living room and screaming. It's horrible. Um, most horrible moment of my life. Um, and then I, you know, went in, got more information. And then my doctor told me it was triple negative, And I said, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Um, because because I knew about triple negative because my um, one of my best friends who some of you might know, Ricky Fairley, who's um, very active in the breast cancer community, very involved in the triple negative breast cancer foundation. She had already come into my life. Um, so I knew a lot. She had educated me about triple negative breast cancer and I knew it was r more rare. I knew it was more difficult to treat. And I also associated it with black women um, because it does tend to be, I, I, I think it's probably equally prevalent in white women and black women, but, but, but some of the statistics skew higher in black women. So anyway, I was very, very surprised and, and terrified. Um, but, um, but that was November 2018. I'm almost at two, two years later. Um, I've been through, um, five tree. I'm on my fifth line of therapy, which is Actually, I sometimes cannot believe that I've been on so many treatments. Um, and that's because we don't have, there are not very many treatments that are designed for us. Um, so the majority of the treatments that I've been on are, are designed for um, ER positive breast cancer. Um, that's what the trials are in. And they, you know, they do have some efficacy in triple negative. So they're basically throwing lots of stuff at me, things that are not meant for me. And that's so what one person once told me at a conference, oh, you triple negative people, you guys burn through treatments, which was a really terrifying thing to hear. But it was, it has been true. Um, so I've gone through a number of them. Um, but, but luckily, um, I, and I actually changed to a different oncologist in this whole process. I changed to a doctor who does a lot of research in triple negative, and he's really, really good. And his, his treatment philosophy is to, um, he's just all over everything and very, very um, cautious. And as soon as we see a sign that something's not working, we'll switch to something else. Mm -hmm. And so he's very on top of it. So, I mean, on the one hand, it sucks to switch so many times and it's terrifying. But on the other hand, in my situation, it's a sign of a doctor who's really all over everything and not not waiting for things to get out of hand you know he's almost like being proactive like the first sign that the treatment is failing we switch um but but now um i'm on a i've been on a drug since the spring called Tridalvi, and 
um, this is one of the first drugs that is is actually for people who have what I have. So um, it's for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. It's one of the only drugs for us that exists today. Um, the only ones, the only other one that out, that's out there uh, right now is Tarceva, which is for people who have um, the PDL1 mutation, um, which I don't have, and I think most of us do not have. Um, but but Tridalvi can be used for, um, you know, of course, according to your doctor's recommendation. But it's just generally indicated for any but anybody with metastatic triple negative, regardless of of PDL1 status. Um, and I have to say this drug has been working very, very well for me. Um, it, I've been feeling amazing. I've been feeling the best I've felt the whole time. Um, I, I walk a couple miles a day. Um, yesterday I paddled two miles, two miles around the lake. Um, so I'm in excellent shape. It has resolved all of my symptoms. Um, and it's my, I really believe it's my miracle drug and, and I'm feeling very, very well on it. So I'm very, I'm just very grateful that, that I'm able to be on it. Um, the people at the company who make it, Immunomedics, have been um, wonderful to work with. They helped me get on. It was actually just approved in, in April. And that was around the time I was seeking to start therapy in March. So literally, we, my doctor put in the order me to be with. So actually, I tried to, I initially got the drug through the company's expanded access program, which basically means it's, if the drug hasn't been approved, um, there are ways you can get it if you work with a company. So, so they, so they helped me get it. And then a week later, it was approved. So it was kind of funny because my doctor said, oh, there's so much work to do all that paperwork, but, and it was just approved, but I was so glad it was approved because it got approved a little bit, um, a couple months earlier than than, uh, than we had expected. That's excellent news. And just a quick editor's note. I know you mentioned Traceva. I think it's Tecentric. Gosh, these drug names can be so confusing. Allison, thank you so much for rehashing this entire story. I know it's very hard for all of us every single day to kind of relive those moments of your initial diagnosis, a recurrence, a scare, a biopsy. Um, I know we've all been there on pins and needles waiting results. And I think you summed it up perfectly with like, fuck, like, honestly, like it's, it's something we never want to hear. And again, I appreciate you just kind of being op so open about your experience and, and the emotions that come with that. I have a bajillion follow-up questions. I don't know about the rest of yeah. you. Um, you know, I, I think you highlight so many key points also, and I think this is where some of the the nuts and bolts of this discussion can really flourish, right? We have, and I'm going to call on you, Allison, and you, Abigail, to fill in some of the stats here. But, you know, I think from my perspective, ER-positive breast cancer tends to be the more, quote-unquote, traditional. It's what people are more likely to be diagnosed with, and so that's where we find a lot of the the treatments helping that percentage of people who have the more prevalent type of diagnosis. And even with a metastatic, it's, you know, if 80% or 70% of the people have that, we're going to work really hard to try and resolve X. But there's this whole other group that needs attention too. 
whether it's, you know, triple negative or early stage or late stage or whatever you want to categorize it as. And to me, it's my like vegan, like rah-rah moment of like, when are we going to start, you know, finding the money to invest in broccoli and kale versus pharmaceuticals, right? And it's never going to happen. It's just not. So how can we like take the information we have and our experiences to say, okay, wait, we need to start investing in this because people are dying flat out point blank, right? It's not I'm this characteristic or that characteristic or you're burning through trials or some of the language that you are using. And it's people are dying. And that is at the end of the day, what we need to address. Well, yeah, I mean, here, but there's we still have a long, long way to go for all metastatic breast cancers, but especially triple negative. um, Because you know, the question is, even the, you know, the question is, what, what's going to be my next treatment? This is the one that I've been waiting for. But what's next? I have no idea. And that's, and that's terrifying. I have no idea. And we're losing people all the time. Um, we just lost a member of our community um, last week, um, Kiera, who some of you might know. And she lives with the disease for a number of years, um, but she had metastatic triple negative. Um, so the, the treatment options are not sufficient. They're not sufficient for any of us. Um, there are people dying of all sorts of metastatic breast cancer, but um, but it's especially challenging for for triple negatives. We just we have we have many many fewer options, and, and what and way longer to go as far as clinical development. Can you define mm-hmm. what lines of treatment mean? I feel like we utilize that all the time. Like I'm on my first, second, third, fourth, fifth. What does a line of treatment actually mean? Oh sure, so. I mean, so basically our doctors have treatment algorithms where they they typically will start you. So for example, um, in metastatic um, estrogen positive, like what Abigail has, um, they typically start you with Ibrance as your first line of treatment. So that's basically what most doctors agree is the best first treatment. So, so line of treatment is basically just the treatments, you know, so you have like your first treatment, your second treatment, your third. So, so you move to another line of therapy, um, essentially the next treatment, if the treat, if it could be for a couple of different reasons, it could be because the treatment you're on isn't working, or it could be because the side effects are, are too severe. Um, for, for me, for most of my switches, it's been that the treatments aren't working as, as the reason, although there, there was one treatment where the side effects were, were pretty severe and I couldn't take it. So, um, so yeah. yeah, so every treatment's a new, <laughs> a new adventure. Absolutely. And Abigail, I know you've had similar experience as well. Can you elaborate a little bit on your lines of treatment and where you are today? Sure. Um, like, uh, Allison was mentioning the, the go-to these days are the CDK4-6 inhibitors. Uh, she mentioned Ibrantz. Uh, there are three in that category, Ibrantz, Berzenio, and Kiskali. They have other names that are much harder to pronounce. So I use the names of the, the marketing names versus the scientific names. And I was on Ibrantz uh, for, for my first line of treatment once um, I finished with surgeries and the initial chemo that I went through. And I got two years of stability off of Ibrantz. Uh, I was diagnosed in 2017, and Ibrantz was approved in 2015. So uh, that to me was my first introduction to this idea that research and current research 
is so very important because I was on a drug that had only been out for two years when I was initially diagnosed. Um, I had progression in August of 2019, um, again, after being on Ibrance for two years. And one of the things that I do with my doctor is we have plan A, B, C, D, sometimes E, F, and G, where we're watching certain things or we're watching um, the medication that's getting approved by the FDA. And so when I was diagnosed or when I had the progression in August of 2019, PICRE, the medication that I'm still on a year later, had just been approved that previous May. And because I had had the genomic testing, we knew I had the targetable mutation, um, we were ready to go. And so that from a, from a self-advocacy perspective, um, it, it's important to me that I'm continually asking my doctor, what's next? Uh, what are you looking into? What's the current research? I'm reading trials and um, articles and sending them to her regularly because I don't want to be caught in that moment, like when we were all diagnosed, where it's just um, information overload, you are emotional about what's going on, you're having to make 25 million detailed decisions that have lifelong ramifications in a very, very short period of time with no ability to get up on the, the lingo and understand what some of these things are. I think it's important to remember, I'm three years into a de novo metastatic diagnosis. Allison has been in this, uh, immersed in the world of cancer for far longer. Laura, you, you're years out as well. And so at the beginning, nobody can know all of these things. Um, so, so because of that experience and because I don't like being caught in that you know, I have no frame of reference for this situation. I have what, where, what's going on? It, it was very overwhelming. Um, and, and, in, and then there were just so many things that happened in quick succession. So one of the ways that I manage um, my anxiety, um, one of the ways that I manage in a lot of ways, my quality of life is by making sure that we have all of those plans. Now, obviously, a, a biopsy that changes your subtype, like going from hormone positive to triple negative, that that's a that's a monkey wrench that you can't plan for. Um, but for for my own peace of mind, knowing what's next is so important. So August of 2019, we placed the order for Picre, and I started Picre. My first PET scan showed that it was doing well. I had a, what they call a mixed response, meaning some of the metastases were less active. So PET scans, at the, the, the lighter they bright up, the more metabolic activity is going on. They call that an SUV value. Mm -hmm. And um, every uh, radiologist looks at, it's very subjective. Every radiologist kind of looks at it differently. But um the what I understand is that some Mets were waking up that they were becoming more metabolically active, some were not. And so it was kind of this, this mixed response. Um, my second PET scan showed all of them waking up. Um, so I do have to take two steps back and say that progression. So August of 2019 was my very first progression. And um I was not feeling anything. I didn't have any symptoms. Uh, literally, I, re I remember my husband and I were sitting in the appointment and it totally caught us 
mm-hmm. completely off guard that that I had progression. I'm so thankful that we had already talked about Picray and we had that plan because the amount of PTSD that I had in that moment was astronomical. Literally, my brain and the logical thinking parts of my brain were just offline, totally offline. Um, if I had had to make a decision about what I needed to wear that day or what I wanted to eat for lunch, I would not have been able to make that decision. It was that horrific that I was just plunged back into feeling like I did when I was first diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And and I wasn't ready for that. And nobody said to me, hey, your first progression is going to be horrific. Um, so it was, it was horrific. It was awful. It felt like, again, I had been initially diagnosed again, but I had that plan. So, so we moved on to that plan. And so that really helped me in that. Um, and I realized even after the fact, cause I don't always, I'm not always able to identify and name my emotions in the moment, but looking back on it, I was very, very thankful that we had that plan that I wasn't having to, again, make all of those decisions in such a, um, emotionally difficult time. So Picray, which is not the easiest drug to uh, to manage, it has um, some interesting side effects. Uh, every drug does, but uh, Picray in particular, uh, because it causes hyperglycemia, meaning your glucose um, is elevated, it has to be treated similarly to diabetes. Yes, Dawn is, is saying up, up, up. Dawn, Dawn is in my, my Picray group and she's been on Picray for a bit. So all of pretty, there are some people who don't get any side effects and, you know, I, I want to like copy their DNA or something. Um, cause I get, I always get nausea. There, there's certain side effects that I get with every drug, which is awesome. Uh, so Picray, one of the things that's very difficult to manage is that hyperglycemia. And so most of us who are on Picray are having to be on something else to help with that. Metformin is one of the main ones. I am personally on Jardiance, which is it's just a different kind of medication that um, helps to manage the glucose levels because you can't have sugar levels that are out of control. Like that begins to affect your organs. That That's not, not a happy situation. So my first PET scan was good, was dealing with the side effects. Second PET scan... Uh, basically it, everything was waking up again. And so we were about to, um, about to see progression. Um, and so my oncologist and I decided to do a, an experiment, uh, because I had gotten those two years of stability on Ibrance and because the, that class of drugs, the CDK4-6 inhibitors, it's the only drug that I know of. They actually have a study that the cancer actually forgets. Um, So typically you have a drug that works for a bit, it stops working, and then you can never use that drug again because the cancer knows, I know I'm anthropomorphizing cancer here, but um, the the cancer has mutated to get around that particular drug. Well, somehow these CDK4-6 inhibitors, and I do not understand the science, but somehow the cancer does not retain the information about how to get around them. Which is, which is fascinating, and I'm not even sure the doctors really fully understand that, but they have studied that and they um, have confirmed that typically after an eight-week washout period that you can go back on this class of drugs. So because I got those two years of stability on Ibrance, we added Kiskali, which is a different drug in the same um, class, 
And the reason we did is that Kisgali actually has really good data on its effectiveness in premenopausal women. So I was diagnosed prior to menopause, premenopausal, even though I'm I'm in menopause now because I had my ovaries out. Um, I'm still considered premenopausal in terms of when I was diagnosed. So Kisgali has good data and is the only one where they separated out that group of people. Ibrants may have exactly the same uh, impact. We just can't compare apples to apples because they never separated out that group of people. But they um, Novartis did for Kisgali. So we added Kisgali. And one of the reasons for that is that the studies that are going on right now, we won't see any drugs coming to the public for a good 10 years because of just how long it takes to study these things. But the studies that are going on right now are looking at these combinations. I'm not a doctor. I don't understand how all this works, but it just seemed to me we've got these pathways, right? We have these ways that the cancer is fueling itself, the way these, the cancer is figuring out how to do its dirty deeds. Why not attack it from multiple perspectives or multiple vantage points? It's just logical to me. So now knowing that this, uh, the studies are currently looking at this, um, that was one of the reasons why my oncologist and I decided to do it. Um, and I'm thankful that I have the kind of relationship with my doctor where I can just throw out random things and then she's like, oh, yes, let's do this. That's literally how it happened. Um, so I started that in um, March of 2020 this year. So I had my very first PET scan on this combination in June and it was literally the best PET scan I've had in three years. Like I didn't even know that yes, the stability was a good thing, but that meant that the cancer wasn't completely, um, they couldn't not see it. That's, that's a terrible sentence. Um, so the, the SUV value or how much the cancer is lighting up was, it was all still lighting up. Now it was less or some were less and some were more. So across the board, it was stable, but it wasn't like gone, which is what we wanted to go. We wanted to just be gone. And so the old metastases that I had, you couldn't see it anymore on the PET scan. And they were not lighting up anymore. It was dark. They were dead. The new METs that I got in August for my first progression, the, the value or how much they were lighting up was cut in half. Wow. And so- that was really good. Now I have my next PET scan next month. So we'll, we'll see if it's still, if it's still um, as effective. But one of the other things that my doctor does follow are tumor markers. Um, and tumor markers are, well, at least the one that my doctor follows. It is the, the value or the amount of a certain protein in the blood. And that protein is given off when breast cancer is literally, and this is my uh, um, definition, or this is my explanation of it, because I have bone mets, that the cancer literally eats the bone. It, bone mets are different than metastases that are in soft, um, soft tissue, because um, the mets become a part of the osteoclasts and the osteoblast, that equation as your bone tissue is dying and um, uh coming, uh, or the, uh, the cells are dividing. Um, so the tumor markers that, um, evaluate or measure 
how active that process is. The, um, the Mets literally taking over the osteoclasts. That's how I understand it. It's probably a million times more complicated than that, but that, that's what makes sense to me. So we measure this um, protein. All it is, is a, um, my, my first oncologist called it the poor man's uh, test for cancer <laughs> uh, because it's not always reliable. That, that, that particular protein can be affected by biotin. And a lot of people do biotin for um, your hair to help your hair grow better. It's in a lot of, um, if you pick up any vitamin for women, it's always in, in those uh, multivitamins for women. You have to take a lot of biotin to actually affect it that much. But because it can be affected by other things, it's not what my oncologist calls the gold standard. But for me, it's been a good leading indicator. My tumor marker values start inching up as the cancer is becoming more metabolically active. Well, the tumor markers have been stable since um, I started this combination. So these are all good things. That's and amazing. these things that we follow in this world of, of metastatic cancer because um, we only get scanned every couple of months. And so, you know, we look at these other things, not just how we feel, but also some of those other factors. That was an incredibly thorough overview, <laughs> Abigail. Um, thank you so much. And going into some of the science, non-science language, um, I remember being so confused. Everyone was talking about tumor markers when I first got diagnosed and, oh, we're going to get tumor markers. And I'm like, what are these markers? And I was like, <laughs> no, really? You just draw my blood and then you read these numbers, right? Like tumor markers, it, I thought because they were putting in like the biopsies and I had like some some staples and other like things going into my body that I'm like, oh, that must be the marker. That must be the marker. And mm -hmm. I'm like, no, literally you're drawing blood and that's the tumor marker. So absolutely. Thank you for explaining what not only your own diagnosis is your progression, the drugs that you're currently on, lines one and two, and and the proteins that are being checked and and how they're being checked with the scans. And you you brought up something that I wanted to ask as I'm going to classify myself as the quote unquote early stager. Um, because I am in a situation where I am noticing some of the longer term side effects of the chemotherapies that I'm on. And I am now seeing a cardiologist oncologist because mm. of um, not only all of the chemotherapies that I was on, but also the the radiation that I had to the left side of my chest and also potentially harming the heart. And, you know, I'm looking at you, Allison, and some of you in the chat here on the live talking about Zalota. For those of you who don't know my story, my um, HER2 came back kind of in the gray area. So I was treated on the ACT treatment that you mentioned. And oh God, we're not even gonna talk about that. Um, I was also <laughs> treated with Herceptin and Progeta because I was HER2 positive that some thought. And then come to find out that I was also HER2 negative after my surgery and was given Zalota. So I was given, I think all in all six different types of chemotherapy. So there's a lot of toxicity happening through this body and I'm still not happy about it. Um, to this date, I am on letrozole plus a Lupron shot because I haven't had my ovaries removed just yet. Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't know, I'm not having kids, but like, I just, I don't know if I wanna go through another surgery right now. Though I heard that the surgery is easier than the shot. <laughs> but um, that's another conversation. But all of this to say, 
you know, we go through so much and now that I'm being checked for everything else, whether it's diabetes, pre-diabetic, cholesterol, um, heart disease, high blood pressure, um, you know, you mentioned metformin, et cetera. I almost want to be like, I'm just done. I just want to stop taking <laughs> these drugs because I don't want to be taking more drugs to prevent the side effects of these drugs. And the way that you expressed this, Abigail, was like, you're taking this and you're doing everything you can to make these drugs work. So how do you, just putting you and I on the spot here, how do we reconcile that type of situation? How, you know, and 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 I, and I look at you too, also Allison, where I feel like some of the triple negative breast cancer thrivers are like, I would give anything if there was letrozole or an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen. Yeah. And okay, deal with the joint pain. You're not going to get cancer. Keep taking it. And I'm like, I can't keep taking it. It's driving me crazy. And so I think this is also another elephant in the room where we're talking about quality of life. And, you know, it's not better or worse or what works for you versus me versus the different side effects that we all experience. But it's, I think the three of us here on this call can all go in three different directions about the best course of action. So join us next week for part two, where we're going to go and talk about more in-depth answering some of these questions that we are leaving you hanging with. In addition, next week's conversation is also going to talk about how we can advocate for ourselves in the doctor's office. When you are diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, how can we advocate to get onto various trials? How can we advocate to get treatments and really work and be in partnership with our medical care team? And thank you everyone for listening to our show. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast are from personal experiences and are not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always contact your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. Until next time, keep on thriving.